Today I'm continuing a series talking about Christian philosophy. That's the terminology that's used in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, where it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and uh, vain deceit after the traditions of man, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. And I spent quite a bit of time establishing that when the Scripture talks about beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, this is talking about a way of thinking, systems of thought. What some people would call your paradigm, your worldview, your outlook. Uh, If you're a computer type of person, you would say it's your operating system. In other words, you know, on a computer, you have a certain operating system, and if you tried to put some other system into place, it just wouldn't be compatible. It wouldn't work. You need to establish a Christian philosophy, a Christian way of thinking that is just incompatible with the way that this world thinks. And then when Satan tries to affect you and spoil you through a way of thinking, if it doesn't match up with what God's Word teaches then it just doesn't compute, you can't function, and it would literally stop Satan's actions in your life. This is the way that Satan comes against us is through the way we think. Then we turned over to Genesis chapter 3, and we begin to look at Adam and Eve and see how that Satan came against them. He didn't come and try and overpower them through intimidation, but instead he came with words, philosophy. Uh, He challenged the way that they had been thinking. And they responded incorrectly to it. The first thing that Satan did was try and get them to disbelieve God's Word. And that's exactly what he tries to do with us. He tries to get us to deviate from the Word of God. And so that was the negative experience, what happened to Adam and Eve. The positive thing is if we would make the Word of God absolute authority in our life, give it first place in our life, evaluate everything, make it like a standard that we compare everything with. And if we didn't deviate from what God's Word says, you would not sin. The Scripture says in Psalms 119, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereunto according to thy word. God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And on and on you could go. So if we would just make God's Word the basic philosophy, system of thought, way of thinking, and if we would adopt the Word of God's attitudes, it would just stop Satan from operating in our life. The next thing that we talked about out of Genesis chapter 3 was how that Adam and Eve had not committed themselves to the absolute lordship of God. Now, I've already dealt with this. I'm not going to go back through it, but that is a powerful truth. And this is something that a lot of people haven't done today. There's a lot of people that serve God because they've had God convict them, touch them, draw them closer to God. And they have an affinity and a desire to serve God, but it isn't absolute and it's not unconditional. There's a lot of people that still, on a case-by-case basis, are going to evaluate how they feel, what they think about it. And it's possible that they're going to exalt their wisdom above the wisdom of God. And they just aren't absolutely, totally committed to God. Adam and Eve weren't, see, because when God had told them something, they actually exalted their own reasoning, their own thinking about things and thought they knew as much as God. Of course, the... uh, In hindsight, we know that that wasn't true. We know that this destroyed their life and the entire human race plunged us into sin because they relied on their own thinking. 
the Scripture says that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It says that we are not supposed to lean unto our own understanding. Jeremiah 10, 23, it is not in man that walks to direct his own steps. The way of man isn't in himself. We are not supposed to direct our own steps. We need to come to a place where we recognize that even though God has given us the privilege and the choice of whether how our life goes, we have the ability to choose. The right choice is to recognize that you aren't smart enough to run your own life and to submit yourself to the absolute lordship and control of the Lord. Let me go back over to uh, Genesis chapter 3. I've been using Adam and Eve as an example and showing the mistakes that they made and from that taking some positive things that we can do that will stop Satan from bringing us into a position of defeat. In Genesis chapter 3, we've already talked about how Satan used the most subtle animal, how he challenged the Word of God, how that Adam and Eve were not totally committed to the lordship of God. They weren't absolutely under his control. They exalted their own will. And look at this. In um, Genesis chapter 3, after Eve had told Satan that they could eat of the fruit of the trees, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. In verse 4, the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. Now that is a bold-faced lie. And I guarantee you, Satan still comes against what God says and challenges it, and people are still buying into these lies. God says that homosexuality is a sin. It's an inroad of Satan into our life. It's not the way God intended it to be. And people today are challenging that and just bold-faced lying and saying it's not wrong, it's okay, God made us this way, it's in my genes, I have no control over it. All of those statements that I just made are contrary to what God's Word says. And if you entertain that and think about it, it's going to lead you to death. You know, I'm not meaning to just pick on homosexuality, but I'm using that because that's relatively recently that the attitude of society has changed. Fifty years ago, homosexuality, there were still people who committed that and did that, but they didn't brag about it. They didn't have gay pride days. They didn't try and pass laws where they could legally marry and get benefits and stuff. They knew it was wrong, but they they did it, but they knew it was wrong. Today, people are trying to call what is wrong right. They are bold-facedly just lying against what God says, And God said these things not because He's trying to restrict us and hold back something that is good or ruin our life, but if you were to just look at statistics, I don't have them in front of me, I can't give this to you, but the the suicide rate among homosexuals is, I mean, disproportionately huge compared to the rest of the population. The uh, depression rates the sickness and the disease rates and all kinds of other things. If you looked at this objectively, if you didn't have an agenda, if you weren't trying to rewrite society and promote something, if you just looked at it from an amoral attitude, not trying to say that it's right or wrong, if you just looked at statistics, you could see that it is damaging. It hurts people. It is not a positive lifestyle. It is very, very, very detrimental. And yet people today are just bold-facedly lying and saying, oh, no, it's wonderful. I think one of the greatest lies that the devil has ever sold is to call that being gay, which there isn't anything gay about it. There isn't anything happy or enjoyable about it. It is a terrible lifestyle that destroys people.
And yet Satan, see, just boldfacedly said, you shall not surely die. People today are saying homosexuality isn't wrong. You have no control over it. They're just speaking lies, just exactly like this. Satan lied directly about what God had said. And then in verse 5, it says, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So Satan challenged the Word of God, but the main thing he did, he got into why God had said this, why God had done this. And he began to throw doubt on the very character and the nature of God. Now, this is very important, and this has a direct application to us. Let me say some things here that are going to sound really strange to some of you. But if you will think about it, and I'm going to go through some scriptures, I'll prove this to you. Adam and Eve did not really know the nature of God. They didn't really have a strong relationship with God. Now, I know some of you on the service are going to reject that and think, well, now, wait a minute, these were people who were sinless, They had no corruption on the inside of them. They had never been deceived, lied to. They had never, you know, had many of the problems that people have today. They were walking and talking with God every single day in the cool of the evening. These were people that were living in paradise. How could you say they didn't have a good relationship with God? Well, I'm saying that Satan, in order to get them to commit this sin and to eat of the forbidden fruit, he threw doubt on who God was, what His basic nature and character was like. And basically, I'm extrapolating some of these things. I'm expounding on it some. But this is what he was doing. He was saying, sure, God said, don't eat of the tree. But the reason He doesn't want you to eat is because God doesn't truly love you. God doesn't have your interest at heart. God is trying to keep you from being like Him. In a sense, you could say that He was saying, God is jealous of you. God wants to keep these things from you, which He enjoys. And all of these things were basically a criticism of the nature of God. And so I'm saying that if Adam and Eve had really known the true nature of God, if they would have had a revelation of the goodness and how great God is, did you know that this temptation that Satan was bringing against them would have just ceased to have had any power? This would have ended the temptation right there. They never would have eaten of the forbidden fruit. So you can say that one of the reasons that Adam and Eve were spoiled in this situation, again, I go back to that scripture, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Satan came with a philosophy, a system of thought, a way of thinking that God isn't really a good God, that God doesn't really care about you. And he used those kind of statements to slander God, and that opened up a door. When they started entertaining the thought about, I wonder if God really is withholding something from us. I wonder if God really doesn't love me the way that he's presented himself. When they started entertaining those kind of thoughts, then those thoughts allowed them to reject the Word of God because they believed that God was saying these things for their detriment. Did you know that Satan is still using this exact same ploy today to come against people? Uh, Religion. And when I say the word religion, I know that some people are shocked that a preacher would be speaking against religion. But you know, there is 
true religion, like for instance over in James chapter 1, it talks about true religion, but it puts that word in front of it. True religion. Religion throughout the Bible is a negative thing. Religion, what I'm referring to is man's ideas about God. Man's uh, attempts to reach out to God. And it is just permeated, religion is permeated with wrong thinking, wrong attitudes. Satan is the inspiration of much of this stuff. Buddhism, Hinduism, Muslims all have religion. But true Christianity is God reaching out to us. The Bible isn't religious. This isn't our thoughts about God. This is God's thoughts about Himself revealed to us through people. So, the point that I'm making is religion today is one of Satan's biggest tools to malign the character of God and to criticize God. And people have uh, rejected... Now, they wouldn't say it this way, but people are really rejecting religion. They aren't truly rejecting God. I believe, when I've been over in other countries... Uh, I won't mention any specific names because I'm on television in all of those countries, and I don't want you to think I'm ragging on an individual. But when I go outside of the United States and I go into these other countries, especially some of the countries where Christianity at one time was a dominant force and they have these huge cathedrals and all of these kind of things, did you know that they had a stranglehold not only on individuals, but on the government systems. And they passed laws that were restrictive and they were harsh and condemning and they, uh, you know, did terrible things to people in the name of the Lord. And they have that history. And when I go into places like that, I have to distance myself from religion. I have to go in and say, you know, what I'm talking about is separate from what you have heard. And the reason I take that approach is because I find that most people haven't truly rejected God. They know that there is a God, but they have rejected religion's presentation of Him because in their own heart, it doesn't bear witness. It is not a loving, kind God. Satan misrepresented God here to Adam and Eve. Satan is misrepresenting God today through a tremendous amount of religion And this is the reason that people are falling prey to the sin and to the deception, to the destruction that Satan is putting in their life is because they don't truly know who God is. Well, I wish I could somehow or another talk to you individually and and get this point across to you because I truly believe with all of my heart that if any person was to ever see God as he really is, I mean stripped of what religion has lied about him and the misrepresentations. If we were to see the goodness of God and come to know God as he really is, it would cause every one of you to fall down and worship him and commit your life to him and trust him because he is 100% good. He is 100% pure. He desires nothing but good for you. God is not your problem as religion has painted that He is. God is not the one who's causing you to be sick because He's angry at you and trying to break you and bring you to the end of yourself. God is not the one who's called your marriage to fail. God is not the one who's caused your financial demise. God isn't doing these things because He's ticked off and angry. That's the way that religion has presented it. But that's the way that Satan presented it. Satan maligned the character of God. And Adam and Eve fell for it because they didn't truly know God. And I know that this is hard for some people to grab hold of. But through the Word of God, we can actually know God better than Adam and Eve knew God.
Now, I know that that's the first time some of you have ever thought that. There are some of you thinking, oh, wouldn't it have been great to be back like Adam and Eve before corruption entered the earth, before there was all of these things, and you just knew God and walked and talked with Him every day. I know some of you are going to have to swallow big to handle this, but you know what? I know God better than Eve knew God. Amen. And I know some of you are thinking, well, you arrogant thing, how dare you say that? Do you know what? Adam and Eve, they had creation as a witness. God had prepared a perfect world for them. God had treated them good. He had a perfect environment, the perfect climate, the perfect mate. God had been good to them. There was no reason for them to doubt Him. But they hadn't seen the demonstration of God's love the way that I have through the Word of God. Through the Word of God, I have seen where God has forgiven people, has been gracious unto people, has been kind unto them. The greatest manifestation of God's grace is when Jesus came to this earth and literally God Himself became a man and He took all of our frailties upon Himself He suffered for us and ultimately gave the supreme sacrifice, offered up his body and his soul in sacrifice for us. Adam and Eve didn't know that stuff. Adam and Eve didn't know that God loved them so much that someday he would literally die to cover and to remove their sins. They didn't know that. I know that. You know what? I've got a greater revelation of God through the Word of God than what Adam and Eve had. I know that this is a new thought to some of you. Some people are just thinking that if I was to live like Adam and Eve in the garden and to know God and hear the voice of God, or many people will say things like, if I would have been one of the disciples, and if I could have been with Jesus, and if I'd have seen him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, raise Lazarus from the dead, open up the blind eyes, forgive people and do these things, walk upon the water, if I would have been there, then I would have believed. Did you know that we have an advantage over Adam and Eve, over the disciples, over any of these, in the fact that through the Word of God, you can actually know God, know His nature and character better than Adam and Eve did, better than the disciples did. Man, that's exciting to me. There was a period of time in my life where I always longed and wished I'd have lived in a different time. I wished I'd have been in a different circumstance and situation That's because I didn't understand how powerful God's Word is and what it can do. But through God's Word, you can know God. You have a revelation of God right here in the Word of God that Moses never had. Matter of fact, in uh, 2 Peter, the Scripture says that the... or it might be 1 Peter chapter 1, but the, the Scripture says that the Old Testament saints longed for the day that you and I live in. They desired, earnestly inquired desiring to know the things that you and I know. Did you know Moses, even though he was mightily used of God and knew God in a powerful way, my revelation knowledge of God is greater than that of Moses. It's greater than Elijah and Elisha. It's greater than David. It's greater than Peter. Man, that's a strong statement. But Peter talked about the things that Paul wrote the things about the grace of God and how we're delivered from the old covenant law and we are no longer to relate unto God based on this performance-based thing. And in Second Peter, he said about Paul, he said, Our beloved brother Paul writes of these things and it's hard to be understood. But nonetheless, he called it Scripture and he submitted himself to it. Did you know that I have a revelation 
of God and the grace of God and the new covenant that we now live under that the apostle Peter struggled with and had trouble doing this. Matter of fact, so much so that the apostle Paul rebuked Peter openly in front of the people because he had slidden back into this legalism and into this messianic type of Christianity where he was trying to mix the Old Testament law with the New Testament grace. Did you know that I have a greater revelation of God than the Apostle Peter had? Man, that is a tremendous statement. And the good news is that you can have that, that through the Word of God, you can actually know God and have a better relationship with God than what Adam and Eve had, than what the apostles had than what any Old Testament saint ever had. We now have a revelation. Jesus brought in a understanding of who God really was, His mercy and grace, and He represented God the Father in a way that nobody under the Old Testament had fully conceived. And even the people who were Jesus' twelve apostles here on this earth, they didn't fully understand what Jesus had done. And the Apostle Paul later had to come along and through going into the desert for three and a half years, God gave him divine revelation under the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul began to reveal that Jesus had brought in a new covenant and the extent to what he had really done to redeem us from the wrath of the Old Testament. And he brought in a revelation that even the Apostle Peter struggled with and says, man, some of the things our beloved brother Paul says are hard to be understood. And so, in the New Testament, with the totality of the New Testament and the epistles and the letters of Paul and the book of Hebrews and Romans, we now have a revelation of God that allows us to have access to God in a relationship with God that Adam and Eve didn't have, Moses didn't have, Elijah, Elisha, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, even the apostles of the Lord. We can have a depth of relationship with God that supersedes all of those things. We've got a greater relationship, a greater revelation, which leads to a greater relationship. And I'm here to tell you, and I, I wished I could somehow or another drive this point home and make people believe this. But if you really knew God, we would not fall for the lies of the devil. If Adam and Eve had really known God, if they would have had a revelation that God loved them so passionately, that if they did sin, he wasn't going to totally reject them, but instead someday he would literally become a man and suffer in his physical body, ultimately give up his life to pay for their sins. If they would have known that God was that passionate about them, that he would literally give up everything he had, everything he was for them, then they wouldn't have fallen for this lie because this lie was based on their ignorance about God's real commitment to them. And really, every sin that we enter into comes because we don't truly understand how much God loves us. Now, that's a strong statement. That's a big statement. And I know that some people would disagree with that, but I really believe that. You know, it's... Um, let me just use a couple of examples here. For instance, getting uh, high on dope, going out and doing that. That's something that's a sin. It's not good for you. It's not good for other people. It's contrary to what God has taught us in His Word. Did you know that if people really had relationship with God, 
not just knew about God, but knew Him intimately and had relationship with Him. I cannot understand why a person who is enjoying the benefits and the blessings of, of fellowship with God would ever go out and want to get high on dope. Now think about this. When a person gets high on dope, or if you go uh, get drunk and do things like this, before you do that, you basically are saying that your life is miserable. Now, I know that you may not consciously have thought through these things, but it's all there if you'll just stop and think about it. A person who gets drunk, a person who gets high on dope, is first of all admitting that they are in a miserable state. Otherwise, why would you do something that potentially can cause tremendous damage to your body? Either alcohol or dope can kill you. And if you're shooting up dope, you've got the potential of of transmitting diseases through a shared needle. You've got the potential that you are going to do something foolish while you are under the influence of the alcohol or the drugs. If you were driving, you could uh, have a car wreck and kill yourself or kill somebody else. You've got the potential that you are going to shame yourself and shame your family. It's going to cause condemnation and guilt. Neither booze or dope is cheap. You could literally go to jail. There are just all of these things going on. Now, why would a person open themselves up to that? The only justification for it that I can understand is if a person is so miserable, is so depressed, so their life seems so messed up that they just feel like I've got to have an escape, even if it's only for the night and in the morning, if I'm going to get a hangover, if it's going to come back worse, if I don't take another shot, I'm going to go through withdrawals. I know all these terrible things, but for a brief moment of time, I'm going to be numb and I'm not going to feel my pain. That's the only logic behind it that I can see. So for a person to go take dope or to get drunk, basically they are admitting that their life is a mess which never would happen if you had a good relationship with God. If you were in fellowship with God, and I know that some of you, you may not have really entered in to a place to where you've enjoyed the real presence of God. And so this may seem uh, strange to you, some of the things I'm about to say. But I have enjoyed the presence of God. I know that God loves me. I feel His pleasure. I feel His peace. I have the joy of the Lord in my heart. And because of it, I have zero, zero, zippo, zilch, nada need to escape anything. Now, I've got problems in my life, but the Lord is more than sufficient for anything that comes my way. I don't feel like I have to run away. I don't feel like I have to escape. I don't have to risk damaging my body, spend a lot of money risk disease, risk shame, risk scandal, risk rejection from other people. I don't have to do any of those things to escape my problems because Jesus has filled me with so much joy and peace. I don't need it. Now, I'm just using that example about, you know, taking dope or getting drunk, but you could apply this same thing to adultery or to anything else. If you are content and satisfied, if you were having a vibrant relationship with the Lord, there would be zero need for you to try and fill that emptiness through going out and doing some type of sexual perversion, some sexual immorality. There would be no need for you to go gambling and look for something and desiring all of these things because you'd be so content through the Lord that you don't need any of those kind of things. All sin basically is, and this is much probably an oversimplification, but I believe it's absolutely true. 
It's because of a vacuum on the inside. God created us in His image. When God created Adam and Eve, He filled them. He lived in them, and they had a vibrant relationship with God. When God left, not because He hated mankind, but because mankind rebelled and turned from God, and they expelled God from their life, when that happened, it left a God-shaped vacuum on the inside of us. And people have been trying to fulfill that vacuum ever since with drugs, with alcohol, with sex, with power, with ego type of things, with all of the lust and the things that Satan throws at us. It's basically because people feel that there's got to be something more. They're hungry. They're looking for something and they don't know that God is the answer. I tell you, the only thing that can fill that God-shaped vacuum on the inside of you is God. And when you come back into relationship with God, if you truly understood who God was and had the proper relationship with Him, He would so fill you and you would be so satisfied that you wouldn't have to go somewhere else to try and fill that emptiness. You wouldn't have to turn to illicit sex. You wouldn't have to turn to greed and you wouldn't have to immerse yourself into work and try and justify your existence and build up your ego. But your relationship with God would sustain you. I'm telling you, if Adam and Eve had truly known God and known who He was and had that vibrant relationship. Now, they talked with Him every day, but they still didn't really know His character because Satan was able to lie about God and say that God wasn't a good God and God was withholding something from them. And they bought into it because they didn't really know God. You don't have that excuse. Through the Word of God, we have a revelation of who God is and exactly how much He loves us that leaves us without an excuse. And it's just basically the fact that we haven't been taking advantage of the uh, relationship that is available to us through Jesus that has caused many of us to go out and do the things that we've done. So we're talking about establishing Christian philosophies. One of the things we need to do, a system of thought, we just need to get it built into us that God loves us. We need to press in, appropriate that relationship. And if we would do that, that would just stop all problems in our life. I know that's a big claim, but I really believe that that's true. Let me give you a scripture that will back this up. In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is praying a prayer for the Ephesians. And in verse 14, he says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you be rooted and grounded in love. Now here he is talking about understanding the love of God. If we get rooted and grounded in it, here's the benefit of it. Verse 18, you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Boy, now those are some wonderful statements here. Let me start at the end of verse 19 and work backwards. The very end result of all of this is that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now think about what God is and what He has. I mean, God is absolute life, perfect life. In Him there is no darkness at all. That means that in the Lord there's no depression, there's no sickness, there's no unforgiveness, there's no bitterness... 
There's no hurt. There's no depression. There's no mental problems. Anything negative that you want to talk about that came as a result of sin, in God there is none of that. So when it says that you might be filled with all the fullness of God, it's talking about the opposite of all of this stuff that most of us feel full of. Angry, bitter, hurt, uh, you know, bruised, you're insecure, you're having all these problems. You aren't filled with the fullness of God. If you were filled with the fullness of God, you would have life, you would have health, you would have peace, you would have joy, you would have prosperity, you'd have faith operating in you. There would be joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's the fullness of God. Now, if you want to be filled with the fullness of God, how do you get there? Well, that's, that's what the end result is. Let's backtrack here. In verse 19, it says, And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, how can you know the love of Christ if it passes knowledge? That sounds like a contradiction. It says it passes knowledge, and yet you have to know it. How can you know it if it's beyond knowledge? Well, the key to all of this is understanding that he's saying that you might know, and that know there is talking about an experiential knowledge, just not intellectual knowledge, but that you would experience the love of God which passes or surpasses mere intellectual knowledge about God. You know, in the Old Testament, like for instance in Genesis chapter 4, chapter 5, when it started giving genealogies and all throughout the Bible... It says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare a child. And then Adam knew his wife again, and she bore Abel. And then Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and on and on. It was talking about, the word know there was talking about an experiential relationship, an intimacy. Knowing a person intimately in the physical realm the, the most intimacy you can get with a person physically is to have that sexual relationship. And that's what it was talking about. The word know was describing this intimacy. So in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, when it says that you may know the love of Christ, this is talking about that you would experience intimately the love of Christ, that you would be a possessor and not just a professor of the fact that God loves you, but that you would experience it. Now, put all of this together, and it's saying that if you would experience the love of God, which passes mere intellectual knowledge about the fact that God loves you, then, and only then, are you going to be filled with all the fullness of God. You could say it this way. If you aren't full with all that God has, His love and joy and peace and His health and prosperity and all of these things, if those things aren't abounding in your life, then you don't experientially, intimately know God. You might know about Him. You might have a knowledge that is just information about God. You may go to church, but you don't intimately know Him. Let me go back again to the example we were using in Genesis chapter 3 where I was talking about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve knew who God was. The Scripture doesn't say there was a visible manifestation, but there was at least an audible voice every single day in the cool of the evening. They walked and talked with God. They knew who God was. They knew about Him. They talked to Him. They had had, uh, you know, uh, interaction with Him on many different occasions, but they didn't really know His heart. 
they allowed a talking snake to convince them that this God who had created a perfect world and had given them everything and had just blessed them and blessed them, they allowed a talking snake to convince them that God really didn't have their good in mind, that he was holding back, he was keeping from them. They didn't really intimately know God. That's a strong statement. And if you can say that about Adam and Eve, who were in perfection before sin entered into the world, and yet they didn't really know the heart and the nature of God, well, then what do you think that that says about people today who maybe are Christians? They might have been born again. They may go to church and they may have heard a lot of things about God, but there's a lot of people that don't know God personally. That's a strong statement. And I know that right now I'm speaking to people who you know about God, but you don't know God. And I tell you, there is a world of difference between the two. And because of it, you just it seems like that when pressure comes and you have choices in front of you and you're tempted to do things that are wrong and you just aren't sure and you, you don't know how to, you feel inadequate, you feel unable to deal with it, you, you nearly have to go to somebody else and ask them their opinion because you have no confidence in yourself. You know, all of that comes because you don't intimately know the love of God. You don't personally have that on the inside of you. I can tell you in my own personal life, I got born again when I was eight years old. And I was truly saved. I believe if I would have died, I would have gone to be with the Lord right that moment after that salvation. And there was some evidence of it in my life. But on March the 23rd, 1968, 10 years after I had been born again, I had an encounter where I came to know God. And it's not just a static, one-time experience. It has been progressive, and I'm still coming to know Him. But at that moment, I started knowing God in an intimate way that transformed my life. And I mean, it was like daylight and dark. God came into my life like a flood. And I began to know God. Now again, I instantly, intuitively knew some things. I knew that God loved me independent of my performance. And I could spend a lot of time trying to explain this. I intuitively knew some things, but you have to not only go by what you feel in your heart, you have to renew your mind. And when I first got really turned on to the Lord this March the 23rd, 1968, my thought process is my, you could say my philosophy. That's what we've been teaching on is Christian philosophy. My philosophy was incorrect. I had been taught that God is the one that killed my dad when I was 12 years old, that God needed him in heaven more than I did, and that was imputed unto God as being the source of that. I was told that God put tragedy in our life to humble us and to break us, which is wrong thinking. It's a wrong philosophy. I had a number of wrong philosophies. And even though I was passionate and loved God, until I began to renew, uh, begin to renew my mind, I was open and susceptible for Satan to do some things in my life. So let me give you a quick testimony about some things that happened. Right before I got married, I was contemplating leaving a secular job that I was in and going full-time in the ministry. I felt like that's what God wanted me to do. And as I contemplated this, I had these two dreams, and I won't go into all of the details on this, but these dreams were very real. I mean, so real 
that I woke up, my heart was just pounding. In one of them, I had this guy who was a friend of mine. Now, this is before I was married. I was still a single guy. And, you know, like single guys, you, I was dreaming about going out. And we were just roughhousing and playing. And finally, this guy, he, he knocked me down and was sitting on top of me. And it turned from my friend into the devil. And this guy had his hand like this, his fingers straight out, and he was just jamming it into my mouth. And it was a demonic attack. And I mean, fear rose up on the inside of me. And I bolted right up in bed and sat up. And I mean, my heart was racing. And when I first woke up, I thought, well, it's just a dream. But I went into the restroom and I looked in the mirror and I was bleeding around my mouth. I mean, it wasn't just a dream. I had physically been attacked by something. And it was a supernatural dream. Then I had another one. It's a long story. But both of these dreams were very negative. They were, uh, it was bad stuff. And I basically renounced it and said, this has to be the devil. And I rebuked him. Well, right after that, I mean, just within days after me having these two dreams, I was 300 miles away from home. I went into a Dairy Queen and I was going to order something in a Dairy Queen. And a woman who lived in Houston, this was in Nacogdoches, Texas, and it was probably three or 400 miles from Houston, this woman walked up to me, having never seen me before, and said, Job chapter, and she gave the exact reference, I forget where it is now, but the scripture says, God speaks once, yea, twice, in dreams of the night, in deep sleep, falls upon man. And she says, you thought these dreams were of the devil. This is of God. God is speaking to you. I'd never seen this lady before. I was hundreds of miles away from home. She just walked up to me. And how did she know I'd had any dreams? You know what? This got my attention. And I thought, oh, man, this must be God. And then a man came to our church, and I won't go into all the details, but he was preaching that God puts tragedy in your life. He claimed that he had seven incurable diseases that God had given him because God was trying to humble him and break him. And this man heard about my dreams, about this prophecy. He jumped on that. And he began to prophesy to me and say that God is going to make me a human vegetable. Something was going to happen and I was going to go into a comatose state for eight years. And I was going to stay in this coma. And then after the end of the eight years, I'd come out of this. And during that time, God would have broken me and have made me this great spiritual giant. And I was going to have this ministry. And he tried to make it positive, but it was a very negative terrible thing that he was saying. And during this meeting where this man was prophesying this to me, I went to get my physical uh, for getting married. Jamie and I were going to be married. And it turned out I had um, uh, infectious hepatitis or yellow jaundice is what they called it. And it's usually not life-threatening, but you have to lay flat of your back. You can't do anything. And I'd already determined I wasn't going to lay flat on my back. And if you do get up and just continue to work, I was pouring cement for a living at the time, it could have killed you. And I put all of these things together, and I thought, this is probably how it's going to happen. I'm just going to continue to work. I may go into a coma. This is the way it'll happen. And I was out to eat with this preacher and 15 other people and all of them were telling me, God puts things on you to break you. This is God. God is going to do this. You're going to be in a comatose state for eight years. And because of my philosophy that I had gained through church, I was submitting to it. I mean, I didn't like it, but if that's what God wanted to do, I would have been willing to accept it. I was just about to buy into this. I had humbled myself and I said, you know what? Whatever God's will is, I'll take it. 
But here's the point I'm wanting to get across. When this preacher saw me on the ropes and knew that I was yielding and submitting to what he had to say, Satan always overplays his hand. I mean, the devil just pushed me just a little bit too far. If he would have stopped right there, I probably would have submitted to this. I'd have been in a coma. I might have died. You'd have never heard about me. I wouldn't have had this ministry. But you know what? When they saw me on the ropes, this guy started saying, he says, and the worst thing of all that has happened to me, I've got these eight incurable diseases, and as bad as that is, the worst thing is for eight years, God will not let me study the Word He won't let me read the Bible. He won't let me meditate in it. God has made me take a fast from the Word, and I can't fellowship with God. (laughs) Now, I was willing to let God make me a vegetable. I was willing to let Him do all these things to me. But here's my point. I had enough relationship with God. God spoke to me through the Word. The Word was such an important part of my life. And I mean, when I read the Bible, it's not me reading about God. God speaks to me through this. This is one of the most important things. I had enough revelation about the truth of the Word of God that I knew God would never shut the Word up to me. I knew God would never forbid anybody from reading the Word. That is just violation of everything that the Word of God teaches And see, I didn't have enough knowledge about God to be able to discern these other things. I was still believing God puts sickness on you, that God does tragedy and etc., etc. But I knew God would never shut this word off to me. He commanded me to meditate in it day and night and to keep it before my eyes continually. He would never command me to do something contrary to those commands. And so when this guy said this, there was 15 people out to eat. Here I was, 23 years old, green. I didn't have the authority. This guy was 50 or 60 years old and had all of this clout and authority behind him. But I stood up, pointed my finger right in his face. I said, that's the devil in the name of Jesus. I rebuke everything you've got to say. And I walked out of that place. Those people rejected me. I basically had to leave the church. I lost all of my friends because I wouldn't submit to authority. But you know what? I had a paradigm, a philosophy, a way of thinking that I knew God would not ever tell me to not be in His Word. And when somebody tried to tell me that that was God, I was able to reject the whole thing. I didn't have a lot of knowledge, but praise God, I knew God enough. I knew just a few things about God that I knew this was inconsistent with His character. If we just really knew God, if we had a relation ship, a revelation of who he was. Then when Satan tries to come and get us to do something, he always has to come against what God has said because God has given us very specific direction about what's right to do and what's wrong to do. And the only way Satan can get us to violate that is to come and say, well, but God doesn't really love you. God is mean. God is angry. God doesn't care about you or whatever. If you truly knew God, you know, you would never fall for any of that stuff. Let me just make a couple of statements here, and I know some of you may be offended or put off by this, but I think it needs to be said. But every once in a while, I'll have people come to me, and they'll say that, I prayed for this person to be healed, or I prayed for this need to be met, or I prayed for something to happen, and it didn't happen. And they will come, and they'll say, I'm mad at God. I'm just angry at God. I've even heard preachers before get up and say, now, if you'd be honest, all of you are angry at God. There's something 
you know, that you're disappointed God failed or something like this. You know, I can truthfully say that I have never in my life been angry at God. Now, there's things that have happened in my life that I prayed for one thing and I didn't get it. Like, for instance, I prayed for my dad to be healed when he was in a coma for six months when I was 12 years old. I prayed for him to be healed, and he wasn't healed. But I never thought that God is the one who did this. I never got angry at God. I just can't relate to a person who is angry at God, as if God is the source of your problems. And there was a period of time in my life where I was even taught that God does bad things to us to try and work something good. That isn't true. But even with that doctrine, I still never got mad at God. I figured His wisdom was better than ours. I tell you, if you are one of these that's angry at God, you feel like God's failed you and or you just have a chip on your shoulder towards God, you know, something is seriously wrong with your philosophy. You just don't know God. God is in your corner. God is for you. The Lord has made a provision for everything that you need to get your life straightened out. Now, it's not going to happen automatically. It's not going to happen if you just pray and say, all right, God, do what you want to do in your life. No, you have to seek it. You have to pursue it. You have to cooperate with God. But I tell you, God is your very best friend. God is for you and not against you. And anybody who's got an attitude that you're angry at God, that is... That is somehow or another saying that God has failed, that God has done something negative in your life. That is not true. See, you've got a wrong philosophy. And that's the reason that you've got bitterness. That's the reason that your life is going the direction that it is. That's the reason that you're in control instead of God. You don't feel like you can trust Him. If you knew God, if you truly knew God, you would never submit to these lies like Satan did in the third chapter of the book of Genesis where he says, God knows that you will be like him. God's trying to keep you from reaching your full potential. God's not for you. God's wanting to keep you oppressed. See, Satan is putting forth the same lies. There's people that believe that if I serve God, God is going to do something terrible in my life. I know that I was raised under a doctrine that, you know, we used to sing these songs about just as I am without one plea. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. I will follow you wherever you lead me, I'll go. And they would make a a statement about that you need to yield and surrender and yield to whatever God has in your life. But on the other hand, people would get up and testify that when I make this commitment, when I said, God, I'll go anywhere, God sent them to a grass hut in Africa. God would do this. God would tell them to do the very thing they didn't want to do. And I was raised under a doctrine that really I was fearful that if I turned my life over to God, that that was going to be the end of any good thing. I mean, God isn't going to promote me. God's not going to do anything good in my life. If I turn my life over to God, then whatever chances I ever had of succeeding and seeing any good thing happening in my life, being prosperous or anything, that's not God. God would just want me to be beat down and poor. He's going to put me in some remote place. See, that's the way a lot of people think. There's probably people that you've got that same philosophy, way of thinking, and because of it, it's hindering you. You're afraid to turn your life over to God, afraid of what He's going to do with it. But I tell you this, God wants you to prosper more than you want to prosper. God created you with a purpose and with a design, and you are never going to be as happy, as content, 
as prosperous, as successful doing your thing as you would be to do what God created you to do. God created you with specific talents, specific abilities. He put you in a specific place that is suited to you, and I can guarantee you that you are never, you have no chance of reaching your full potential on your own. It's only when you submit yourself to God and trust Him that you are going to really realize what your full potential is and what God can do. It's just the opposite of, see, the philosophy that many of you have. Many of you are afraid that God is going to just... He's going to make you marry some ugly person. You'll never have a decent-looking person. You'll never have a decent house. You'll never have anything good. God will make you go around with holes in your shoes. That's the philosophy that religion has put forth about God. It's wrong. God is going to treat you better than you would ever treat yourself. Now, he may not give you all the dope and the booze because that's not truly satisfying. Just look at the people who've indulged themselves. It's destroying their life. They die early. All kinds of problems have. He may change some things in your life, but it's everything he does is going to be for the better. See, you need to develop a philosophy that God is a good God and that God is for you. And if you begin to start experiencing that and having relationship with God the way that I've been describing then when Satan comes at you and throws these lies at you, you would say, I know that's not God. This cannot be God's leading in my life because this is not the God that I know. I don't know how to get this across properly, but I, I just really am testifying to you that when I encountered the Lord and He became real to me and I began to fellowship with Him, not just know about Him. I got born again when I was eight. But when I was 18, I began to really fellowship and know God. And since that time, I've been able to reject the lies of the devil that would have caused me to be in a comatose state, that would have caused me absolute destruction. I've been able to resist so many things just because I know God and I know how He thinks and what He does. And because of that, when feelings, thoughts, opportunities come to me, I know... is. I know whether they're consistent with God's nature or not consistent. I'm able to discern those things. And I'm telling you that there's a lot of you watching this program or listening by radio that you want to do the right thing, but you just are guessing. It's like you're, you're on your own. If you would just press in and get to know God and know how He thinks, then you could imitate Him. And when you have decisions in front of you, you can just know how God operates. I tell you, that's powerful. You know, when we raise our kids, you aren't just trying to teach them laws and do this and do this and do this. What you're really trying to do is to give them your heart so that they have your heart and your attitude or in the context of what I've been teaching, your philosophy. Now see, if they have your philosophy, then when they are teenagers and they're on their own, you don't have to worry about, well... I can't let them out of my sight because they might do something wrong. No, if they've got your heart, your philosophy, then in a situation, they may make a few mistakes, but ultimately you can trust that they're going to do the right thing because they have your heart. They have your way of looking at things. They are going to do things as they believe that you would want them to do. And see, that's what we need to do. We need to be in relationship with God, have such a depth of relationship that we know Him. And then when we come up against unforgiveness or forgiveness, 
we know God. We know how He's treated us. And He told us that we need to give uh, forgiveness to others even as we've been forgiven. So when we're presented with that, we just know God's heart. We know how kind and loving and forgiving He is. And so we turn around and imitate that and give it to other people. But see, we've got a lot of people who quote-unquote are Christians. They're claiming the name of Christianity. They're trying to follow rules and regulations, but it's not in their heart. They're trying to give forgiveness to somebody when they haven't really experienced God's forgiveness themselves. They may have known about it, but on a continual basis, they go around feeling unworthy and condemned and feeling like God won't answer my prayer because I haven't read the Bible, I haven't prayed, I haven't done everything I should. See, if you're living under condemnation yourself, you can't turn around and forgive. You can't turn around and forgive other people and give grace and mercy to them if you're living under condemnation yourself. You need to be experiencing it. If you would be in relationship with God and enjoying His presence and feeling His pleasure and having Him speak to you, and, and if you were in that kind of a communion, then when Satan comes against you, Satan is a liar. It says in John chapter 8, he's a liar and he's the father of all lies. Satan can't speak the truth. He may speak a little half-truth, but it'll be wrapped in a lie. And so anything Satan says to you is going to violate God's Word. It's going to violate the way that God is. And if you were in fellowship and communion with God, you'll be able to instantly see that lie and that deception, and you'll be able to deal with it. I'm telling you that relationship with God is your greatest defense that you have against the lies of the devil. And most people just aren't appropriating their relationship with God. They're going through life trying to control themselves by rules and regulations instead of an intimate fellowship with God. And that's not the way that God made it to be. Let me give you another example of what I'm talking about. Some of you have heard me mention before that on March the 4th, 2001, my youngest son, Peter, died. And he was dead for five hours. And I got a call after about four hours of him being dead. And my oldest son, Joshua, told me that Peter was dead. And I asked him what happened. And then I said, well, the first report's not the last report. I said, don't let anybody touch him or do anything until we get there. And then my wife and I had to get up and get dressed. It took us an hour and 15 minutes to drive into Colorado Springs. And um, during this period of time, our cell phones didn't work. There was no way to get an update to find out what was going on. And during that drive in, just like anybody else, I began to start having feelings of uh, sadness, grief, sorrow, thoughts of how could this happen, uh, feelings of condemnation like, God, you know, uh, I failed you somehow or another. And I had all of these negative things going on on the inside of me. But you know what? I knew that some of these thoughts that I was having, and I was beginning to feel like, God, how could you have let this happen? But see, I knew that God doesn't control things like that. Nonetheless, even though I knew what the truth was, here's how my feelings were. Somebody will be able to relate to what I'm talking about. You know the truth, but you just feel a certain way. And if you feel it, well, then do you feelings empower it? And that becomes reality, whether it's truth or not. And But because of the way I thought, because of the way that the Word of God has influenced me, you know what? I was able just to start, I just started out of my 
uh, innermost beings, praising God and saying, God, you are not my problem. You did not kill my son. This is not your judgment upon him or upon me. And I just started saying, you are a faithful God. And I started praising him. And you know what I started doing was going back to my relationship with God. And as I just started fellowshipping with God and saying, God, I want you to know that regardless of whether my son comes back to life or not, that you're a good God and that I'm going to serve you. And as I just started focusing on my relationship with God, did you know that the Lord started bringing scriptures back to me? He brought prophecies back to me about my son that hadn't been fulfilled yet and just a number of different things. And within a very short period of time, I mean, I had such an assurance in my heart that my son would live and not die, that I was praising God, I was shouting. My wife wondered what had happened to me if I had lost it, but I told her, I said, this is going to be the greatest testimony you've ever seen. And when we finally got into the springs, it's a long story, but my son Joshua came out and he said, Dad, he said, five or ten minutes after I called you, Peter just sat up. He was in a cooler, stripped naked, with the toe tag around him. They don't do that to people who are alive. He had been dead for nearly five hours, and he just sat up, and we went in and talked to him. He was totally coherent. God raised him from the dead, and praise God today. He's working for me. He's working here in the ministry. I've got a granddaughter who's three years old now, and you know what? Praise God for what happened, and it all came out of relationship. I was able to overcome the sorrow, the grief, the fear, all of these negative things that all of us fight against. And you know how I did it? I went back to my relationship with God and I just started thanking Him and loving Him. And as you do that, you know, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, that faith works by love. If you want to see your faith produce you know how you do it? You focus on how much God loves you. You go back to your relationship. And when love begins to start flowing through you, faith just abounds. That's the way that it works. Faith is basically just trust, reliance upon God. It would be very similar to a little child, you know, a one-year-old or a two-year-old child. You don't ever see them going around in their father's arms and saying, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that my dad will not drop me. I confess it with my mouth and believe in my heart that he's going to feed me today, that I'm going to get a tricycle when I'm three years old. They aren't manipulating. They aren't striving. They aren't fighting like most Christians are. You know why? Because they have this relationship they just trust their father. You'll find that a little kid will be out there and the father will be in the deep end of the water and he'll say jump and a little kid will jump into, a, into water that if the father wasn't faithful, if the father didn't come through with what he had promised, the kid could drown. A life and death situation and yet a kid will jump off into that situation. Why? And trust just because they have a relationship. You know why many of us struggle so much to rely upon God and to trust God? Because we don't have a relationship. It takes time to build a relationship. It takes effort. You don't just automatically have a relationship. You know, I have people that watch me on television. They get my tapes and CDs and they listen to my teaching. And because I use a lot of stories like what I've done today, they feel that they know all of these things about me. And so they feel close to me. And yet I've never seen this person. 
And they come and they see me at a meeting and they just tell me how I've been a blessing. And man, they love me and they want to be my best friend. And they just are in a sense trying to smother me. And you know what? You can't, I can't just give relationship to a person. It takes time to build that relationship. And sometimes when people ignore that fact, and they may know a lot about me, but I don't know anything about them, and they try and push themselves on me, you know, it makes me want to push back and just say, hey, wait a minute, stay your distance. It takes time to build a relationship. I think most of us understand what I'm talking about. And you know what? God's a person. And it takes time to build a relationship. It's not just you get a piece of information here and you know something about God and that's it. But then you have to take that piece of information. And if it's the truth, you have to incorporate that into your time with the Lord and fellowship with Him. And you have to talk to Him about it. And you have to pray and meditate on it. And you build relationship over a period of time. And I'm telling you that if you would just make this a centerpiece of your life is not just knowing about God, not just doing the right things and not going out and sinning and not trying to break some law. That's not what it's all about. If you would just come to know God, if you would press in and spend time with the Lord and build relationship with God, that would cause you to live a holy life. You wouldn't even have to focus on not breaking the rules because if you're in fellowship with God... It ju- you just can't sin and be in fellowship with God. Now, that's a statement that could use a lot more explanation than what I've got time to give it right now, but I tell you it's true. You know, just imagine this. If you could imagine a Christian, a born-again, spirit-filled, tongue-talking Christian, a person who loves God, and somehow or another they're going to go commit adultery, they're going to go into a prostitute. You know, just imagine this, that right before you get into bed with the prostitute, You just say, well, let's pray and let's dedicate this time to the Lord. God, we want to honor you. We want to be in fellowship with you. If you could imagine that kind of a scenario, I can guarantee you, you would never be able to follow through with that act of sexual immorality. When you do something like that, you have to literally put God out of your mind. You have to unplug from Him and just like put blinders on and then just let your hormones run wild. If you were to really keep your mind stayed on the Lord and be in fellowship with God, it would just kill that type of a sin. It would kill any type of sin. Fellowship with God will stop you from going out and doing the stupid things that all of us do and making these mistakes. Relationship with God is what Adam and Eve actually were deficient in. They talked to him, they spent time with him, but they didn't really know who he was. And because of that, Satan was able to lie about the very nature and character of God, and they bought into it. And most of us are letting Satan lie to us because we don't truly know God either. I tell you, these are powerful truths. Let me give you another passage of Scripture. Over here in 1 John chapter 4, and in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God... And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now, this is what we've been talking about is about knowing God in a scriptural sense, in an intimate, personal way. And this says, everyone that loves is born of God and knoweth God. Now, it's going to take a little bit of effort on your part to get the point I'm trying to make right here, but it's worth the effort. Most Christians have what I call spiritual dyslexia. Dyslexia is where you see things. You know, people that are dyslexic 
see words backwards, like instead of the word G-O-D, God, a dyslexic, will read it the other way and read D-O-G, dog. There's a huge difference between God and dog. But a dyslexic just kind of reverses things somehow or another. Well, there is a condition called spiritual dyslexia where Christians have been so programmed by religion, they have a philosophy that in order to be right, you have to do right. But it's actually just the opposite what the Scripture is saying. The Scripture is saying, if you will be right, then you will do right. It's not doing right makes you right, but being right with God in your heart makes you do the right thing. And this is what this verse is saying. Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. And so people read that and think, well, I want to know God, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to love other people and then I'll know God. No, it's saying exactly the opposite, that knowing God causes you to love other people. You can't give away what you don't have. If you haven't, first of all, let God love you and understood God's love for you, no wonder you're mean as a snake to everybody else because you can only give what you've got. If you aren't basking in the love of God yourself, you can't turn around and turn the other cheek to another person who's treating you poorly. If you think that God is slapping you every time you do something wrong, you're going to slap somebody else every time they do something wrong. But if you've received the forgiveness of God and if you're basking in that yourself, then you're able to turn around and forgive people who've done you wrong because you first of all received it from the Lord. So that's what this verse is saying. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. God doesn't just have love. This isn't just one of the characteristics of God. This is the very nature, the core of God. God is love. And everyone who really loves has to, first of all, really know God. Because again, you can't give away what you don't have. A person who does not walk in love is a person who does not know God. Now, they may be born again. I think it's possible. It's not normal. It's abnormal. It's a perversion. But it is possible for a person to be born again and yet not have appropriated the relationship with God. And they don't really know the nature of God. So it is possible to be born again and not walking in love. But you can't say that. You can't say you know God intimately and still be in strife with everybody else. That just can't happen. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So people read that and think, well, I want to know God, so what I'm going to do is start loving other people. No, this is saying just the opposite, that if you would just press into knowing God and make relationship with God one of your philosophies that I'm going to know God, I want to know all about Him, then you would wind up fulfilling the law and living godly towards other people. In verse 9, it says, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, that means the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Again, the emphasis isn't on, first of all, loving others, and then that causes God to love us because we are doing the right thing. No, we first of all have to receive God's love for ourselves, and then we love others. 
It goes on to say in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We love, first of all, because He loved us. It's not us loving others and then God loves us because of what we've done. But no, we accept God's love for us and that causes us to love others. Verse 12, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and His love is perfected in us. Well, people think, well, I want God to dwell in me, so what I'm going to do is love others. No, you got spiritual dyslexia again. It is saying that if you would just understand how much God loves you, and if you knew God's love for you, then you would love others. And His love would be perfected flowing through you towards others. In verse 13, it says, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. People again say, well, I want God to dwell in me, so I'm going to love others. No, it's exactly the opposite. If you would just accept the love that God has for you through the Lord Jesus and begin to start focusing on that and let this relationship build, then you would love other people. You know, if you just know about me, some of you have seen me on television, you've listened to a tape or whatever, but if you don't really know me, Well, then somebody else could come along and say, well, have you heard that Andrew Womack has committed adultery, that he lies and he steals and he's a bank robber? And they could say all kinds of things against me. And if you don't know me, then those sayings could influence your opinion about me and would affect your trust and reliance upon me. But you know what? If you really knew me, if you were a friend of mine, and you knew me, you would know that there's just certain things that are outside of the realm of possibility, that I have lived my life a certain way, and if somebody came up and accused me of something, you would be able to reject that, not because you know about me, but because you really know me. You know, I know my wife in that scriptural sense of the word. I mean, I know her intimately. And, you know, my wife is just like me. She's got positive and negatives. There are things in her that God's still working on. She's not perfect. But I guarantee you, I know my wife. And if you were to come to me and start accusing me that my wife, every time I've been out of town, she's been running around and she sleeps with people and she does this and she's saying one thing to me, but she's acting another way when I'm gone. If you were to try and accuse her, you know what? It would be like water off a duck's back to me because I know my wife. I know what she will do and I know what she won't do. Now, I'm aware that all of us are people and that any of us are capable of making any kind of mistake, but we aren't capable of making it just now. It takes a period of time and there would have to be a major breach in her relationship with God and in her relationship with me over a prolonged period of time before she would be capable of doing some of those things that I just mentioned. See, I know her and I know where the limits are and because of that, if you were to come and accuse her, I would know whether that was valid or not, whether it was possible or not because of relationship. But if I meet Joe Blow person on the street over here and I don't know very much about them, you could come up and accuse them of anything and I don't know whether it's true or not because I don't know them. 
Well, see, in a real sense, this is the way that even Christians are. They may know that God wants to forgive them as far as eternity goes and doesn't want them to go to hell. He wants them to go to heaven. And so they know Him to that degree, but they haven't pressed in to where they really know God. And because of this, Satan is able to lie to them about the nature and the character of God, and they fall for these lies, and they fail to trust God. They're afraid to let go and step out and do what His Word says. And the bottom line of it all is they just don't know God. And you're the one that determines how much you know of God. God wants to know every one of you intimately. It's not God who's not got His arms open waiting for you to come to Him. It's you that has been occupied with something else or because of wrong understanding you've been held back from pressing in. But I'm telling you that you are the one that determines how close to God you feel, how close to God your relationship is. God loves you and He wants to have intimate relationship with you. And if you would just make that a priority and press in and get to know God, that's the greatest defense against Satan's lies that you could ever have. And that's powerful.